0: Hello everyone, I'm Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. If you're a fan of Roman history, then my show could be for you. Roman history didn't end in 476 AD, it just moved permanently east. Come with me to Constantinople and hear the amazing story of an empire that lasted for another thousand years. Go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com or wherever you get your podcasts, And for now, sit back and enjoy another episode of the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 12. Ladies. Before we get going... I want to give a big thank you to Robin of the History of Byzantium podcast, who you just heard before. He was a huge help to me getting this whole thing started, as well as being a part of the inspiration for the format of the Moldy Myth episodes. I highly recommend you check out his podcast. It's absolutely fantastic. He was also kind enough to let me pop into his own show. So for those of you who have come from there, Harimai, mai. Welcome. I hope you will enjoy learning about Aotearoa New Zealand, but I should say that I do recommend you go back to the first episode and work your way up to here. It will give you a much better understanding of what we are talking about now and help you with learning words from te reo Māori, the Māori language, which we use a lot of to illustrate certain ideas. If you are struggling to remember what each te reo word means, there is a page on the website, historyaotearoa.com, that should help you remember and understand the words we have used thus far all finished with the other episodes? Sweet as, let's get going. Last time, we talked about how Māori viewed their own borders and ownership of land, and how that contrasted with European ideas, along with what houses were made of, and the importance of marais. After looking at the script for this episode again, I realised it was going to be really long, so instead of making it one big episode, I'm going to make it two shorter ones. To decide which topic to focus on this week, I put up a poll on Twitter and Facebook, and democracy decided we're going to change tack a bit, and look specifically at traditional Moldy women and their place in society, which is something that is often omitted in the written histories. Women don't tend to have much power throughout history, and the people writing stuff down generally were men, who often weren't interested in what women were up to, because in their mind they weren't up to much so being able to have some information about them is fairly rare, but supremely interesting. Don't worry though, we'll return to the marae next time to talk about what you'd be doing in one, specifically the most common ceremony at the beginning of a meeting or hui, the pōwhiri. Before we get properly started though, in the course of today's topics we are going to be talking about one rather explicit thing. So if you are listening with your kids, and I know there is some of you out there who do, then you may wish to stop here and screen this episode before letting your children's ears listen to my filth. They gone? Alright. We're going to discuss something so embarrassing, so socially reprehensive, we barely even like to discuss it in public or acknowledge its existence. Sex. So with that warning in place, let's crack into it. As I mentioned... Women throughout history don't tend to get talked about much, and generally when they do get some airtime, it's mostly to lambast them for being too lustful or trying to kill their stepson or something ridiculous. So we sometimes don't know much about specific women, but thankfully we do know what mouldy women were generally up to in the pre-European era. From a young age, both boys and girls were having their bodies manipulated to bring them closer to what was considered attractive, such as their nose being pinched and their knees being rubbed occasionally. Women would also have the first joint of their thumb bent outwards to aid in weaving and flax preparation later on in life. As they got older, both men and women were also expected to have some sort of tamoko, tattooing, before they would be considered for marriage. We will talk about it more in a later episode, but women would generally only get their lips and chin tattooed, whereas men would get their entire face and most of their body done. Although, just some facial tattooing was required for a young bachelor to be thought of as attractive. Women naturally wanted to marry a hard-working man who could provide for them, and there were sayings among female circles that reinforced this, such as, and I do apologise for the pronunciation, I'm not used to speaking full sentences in te reo, quote, Tāneiro kakahi Kamoya. Tane moi iroto e tefari krua te takataka. Taka. If a man is proficient in gathering shellfish, marry him. If he sleeps lazily in the house, reject him. Which I think is pretty fair enough. Men did have a corresponding proverb, though, that went, Wahine e te ringaringa, wai wai kama mōia, wahine e te nyutu kakama fakarerea atu. If a girl has nimble hands and feet, marry her. If she is only agile at talking, leave her alone. Now, this may sound harsh, but just remember, women were weaving clothes and mats for warmth. A man's survival relied just as much on a woman making him warm clothes as a woman relied on a man to get food. Anyway, the general gist is that men wanted women that could weave and prepare food for them as well as being proficient at hospitality and dancing, although that was more important for rangatira, and women wanted a man who could provide food so they wouldn't starve. How do you get to the point of marriage though? Well, we find that in areas like this, women actually had a lot of freedom. Women frequently initiated courtship, especially where the woman was of a higher rank than the man she was interested in. She could do this in a couple of different ways. Such as by simply announcing her choice in public, or by making more discreet gestures like squeezing his hand or pinching his knee. Not sure how the last one is meant to be discreet though. It's not like you can just casually lean down and pinch someone's knee. I would have thought that would be rather obvious. In any case, that's what they apparently did to indicate attraction. So, what would they do with that attraction? Well... What anyone does when they meet an attractive person on Tinder. They get busy. In all seriousness, premarital sex was actually pretty common and well accepted for both sexes, except for the daughters of chiefs, as you might imagine. Many early explorers commented on the sexual freedom of young women, but a lot of reports that we get are also from European sailors who were often presented with women for their pleasure which was usual and expected in Māori culture. In these same accounts, sailors quickly begin to realise that the removal or absence of any woman when receiving hospitality was an indication of an impending attack. Of course, sexual promiscuity in a hapu was limited by a few things such as whether the hapu was small, incest, and large differences in rank. The other thing to note from this as well, is that even though Māori society was promiscuous, It didn't mean you could just go waving your John Thomas in the middle of the street. Exposure of the pubic region in particular was considered indecent. In fact, it was thought of as so indecent that there is an account of a woman being attacked whilst naked, and instead of covering her head, she covers her genitals. In terms of marriage, not all sex was equal though. Sex outside the house was just that sex. But sex inside the house was more important. An implied marriage, and if you wanted to marry a man who the hapu didn't approve of, well, just have someone catch you getting it on at his place. Although mutual attraction was something that was the foundation of a marriage, there was likely a bit of politics thrown in there too, with the heads of families also having some influence over who a woman could marry, especially if she was the daughter of a chief or similar high rank. If she was unwilling to marry her chosen suitor, then she may be confined to a pātaka until she agreed, which was not an uncommon punishment. Once a marriage was decided, there wasn't really a marriage ceremony as such, just the handing over of the bride from her male relatives to her new husband as his property, a tradition called pākūha. Given that a woman was seen as her husband's property, adultery was naturally a serious offence, often leading to war. It wasn't just as simple as catching them in the act though, you had to determine who was at fault. By that I mean, if they were found in the woman's fuddy, the man was considered the seducer and killed. If in the man's fuddy, she was killed for seducing him. Makes you wonder whether they had arguments over where they would have their next meeting, given one of them would be very clearly on the hook if they were ever caught. The interesting thing about this really severe punishment is that it was universally accepted as an appropriate punishment, and as such, utu was not often pursued in response to the execution. There were also some instances of the husband or wife that was crossed getting support from their hapu and attacking the hapu of the seducer, potentially eating them. It wasn't all grim though, For example, there was one report where a chief forgave his wife for cheating on him with a slave who was meant to guard her, as she was the one who instigated the affair. Had it been the other way around, the slave would likely have been executed and eaten. If adultery wasn't or couldn't be discovered through catching them in the act, the other way was to find out through omens, such as undercooked fish or catching a fish through the tail rather than its mouth. Although adultery was a serious crime, Polygamy was also present, meaning men would commonly have more than one wife. We aren't totally sure if there was a limit to the amount of women a man could marry. Some say it was a max of four, whereas others say there wasn't really a limit at all. Most chiefs are said to have had anywhere between five to twelve wives, with most men having at least two if they had the means to do so. A man didn't just marry a bunch of women with no structure to it though. One of the women would be the first or principal wife, called the Wahini mātua, and would have all the privileges and responsibilities that would come with that position. One such privilege is if the union bore children, they would get precedence over children born from other wives when it came to rank and succession. The first wife would usually be of similar rank to her husband to preserve his mana, and because the marriage was usually for political reasons, such as allying two hapu together. For a chief, having more than one wife conferred a lot of prestige, and was a good way to show off your wealth, by being able to indicate that you could feed and house everyone under one roof. This was enhanced if one or more of his wives was a noble, and brought slaves, property and alliances with her to her husband. What is interesting is that if a woman had rights to or owned any land, she would often continue to reside thereafter with her chiefly husband, travelling to spend time with each woman in turn. It wasn't all sunshine and roses between the wives though, and there was often tension between them. When women were asked if they would prefer monogamy, they fairly predictably said yes, they would prefer to have a monogamous marriage. What's interesting with that, though, is that we hear of a chief who also said he would prefer to have only one wife, so he wouldn't have to deal with the friction polygamy caused. This may have contributed to the common practice of sisters being married to the same man, perhaps to keep issues in-house, as it were. Polygamy also led to the obligation of a man to marry his brother's wife or wives when he died, so as not to leave them destitute. Despite what people thought, though the economic, labour, and prestige incentives likely outweighed anything else. This can be seen in a proverb from the time: "Kamate faritahi, kaora farirua." One house brings disaster; two houses, life. Where there is marriage, there is also divorce, and a woman could be divorced if she failed to produce children. In particular male children, as they were the ones who would inherit and bring the most mana to a whānau or hapu. This was one of the areas where women got a bit shafted, because women were generally accepted as being the receptacle and bearer of a man's quote-unquote spirit, which came from the story of the god Tane Mahuta and his wife. Despite this, women were held responsible for a lack of conception, hence the divorce, which in some instances was insisted on by the woman herself, often suggesting her husband marry her sister instead. As a quick little side note, it seems that homosexuality for both males and females may have not only been common, but reasonably well accepted, which is present in other Pacific cultures as well. Women could also be offered up as part of a peace negotiation after war. Usually, it would be a high-ranking woman or the chief's daughter, which would boost the mana of the victorious chief. Women who were captured in battle were usually referred to as concubines, but they were well-treated along with their children, despite their lower status. We have talked about the division of labour a little bit before, with men doing the more arduous and physical tasks, with women taking the more monotonous tasks. In saying that, though, women did do some rather physical tasks, such as carrying logs for building houses, or paddling waka when going to war. They wouldn't do this in the war canoes though, as they were highly decorated with carvings, and as we've already discussed, women are noa, and carvings are very tapu, and those sorts of things don't really kind of mix. So instead, women would follow in their own canoes. What's funny about this, is that it was also a woman's job, to load a waka for travel, and apparently more than one chief did have difficulty loading his canoes due to a lack of women present. Like, come on fellas, harden up and do it yourself. Many jobs were even undertaken side by side, such as when planting, men would dig up soil with women following along with the seeds, or men fishing in waka as women collected shellfish on the shore. The only exception to that second one is pāwa, Men dived for that, because it is found a little bit deeper. Even though there was this division of labour, some tasks were performed by both sexes, such as foraging for plants, preparing dyes, and we even see men weaving baskets and cloaks, with some high-value cloaks having been made by men rather than women. This didn't necessarily swing the other way though, given women's NOAA status. So things like tamoko and carving both very tapu professions, as we have discussed, were unavailable to them. In short, young women weren't just child carers and homemakers, they were expected to pull their weight in the community. As a woman got older, her responsibility would change to looking after the next generation. They would sing lullabies to the children that would detail their whakapapa mythology and other tribal history matters on tapu were also taught at a young age again told in the form of stories people receiving punishment for stepping on tapu ground and things like that as the child got older independence and curiosity was regarded highly with parents and grandparents sometimes not punishing their children as harshly so as not to discourage bravery and audacity but mostly in males altruism with the tribe was also encouraged with the education of children being the responsibility of the entire tribe, and children helping with chores when they were old enough. In the specific case of girls, they would have learned how to prepare a hangi, carry firewood, clear weeds, and prepare flax for weaving by about 9 or 10 years old. Training in weaving itself also began around 10, but this was with much more ritual and tapu. Mothers also spoke rather freely about menstruation, and the tapu involved as well. For example, women could not prepare a hangi if menstruating, as the food would not cook properly. Another way of teaching cultural norms was through games, haka, and poi, which was a traditional form of Māori dance, which involved spinning weights held by a rope, which is still practiced today. So, after all that, I bet there are some of you jumping up and down, wondering if women could become chiefs, Given I have exclusively referred to rangatira and ariki as being males, well, I do have to disappoint you a little, as although it was not unheard of for a woman of high rank to become a chief, it was fairly rare. Usually, if the firstborn was a girl, she would be afforded much more respect than if she was born further down the line, and as such, she would be referred to as ariki tapaihu, or perhaps just tapiru chief by association, with her oldest brother assuming the actual chieftainship. But as we have discussed, women could rise to some prominence, such as the late Māori queen, and depending on how you view things, traditional Māori women did have a lot of freedoms that their European counterparts may have not. Next time, we return to the marae to look at Pouwhiri, the traditional Māori ceremony of greeting which will involve speeches, challenges, singing, fancy introductions, and we will talk a bit about cannibalism too. So you may want to skip the next one as well if you don't want your kids listening to that either. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or twitter at historyaotearoa or facebook at historyaotearoa new zealand podcast. Aotearoa is spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform and to tell your friends to help us grow and teach more people about the history of our island nation. As always, Haritu tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.